Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. I'm your co-host, no longer committed to recording in a fully tiled bathroom, Mark Bigney. And with me, as always, is my loyal co-host, face-to-face, Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Fantastic, Mark. How are you today? I am very, very well. Well, the it is very much like the floodgates being opened after a long period of comparative rel- fallow inactivity. We now have, uh, wait for it, uh, I played 32 games last week. How many games did you yeah, play? Yeah, I have like three pages of games played this week. It was quite a week. So buckle in. It might go long. <laughs> so we're going to talk about the Eurus, the as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment, talking about the game we reviewed last year. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And finally, we're going to have a topic this week, and that is dead collectible games. So with that in mind, let us talk about the Eurus. Last year, what did we review, Walker? We reviewed a game called Asgard's Chosen, which is a very unique design, which is fabulous. I've yet to see a game that even captures what it does fully. You know what I mean? It has this very interesting card system where you're like trying to... Ex- it's know, a lot like Page Night. It's a lot like Page Night. <laughs> you're trying to... I feel so dirty, but it's true. You have this interesting uh, deck of cards and you sort of whittle it away because you have to give some up to uh, score victory point conditions, right? Yes. So you're sort of slowly losing cards out of your deck and you're trying to do this, you know, control of this map to, you know, get abilities and powers and... Overall, it's a fantastic little game. I just broke out in a smile when I saw that Asgard's Chosen was the Aeurus. Because unlike many Aeuruses where it's like, I hadn't played it, wouldn't mind playing it again, or I've played it a couple times, I've played Asgard's Chosen several times since we reviewed it last year, both solo and competitively. And I agree with you. It's a, it's a very solid design, very underlooked. 
I love the theme. I love the way it does an interesting spin on area control. Area control is not usually my favorite type of game, but I like how it approaches it. And you're quite right to point out that despite the fact that the fundamental card churn is somewhat reminiscent of Mage Knight, Mage Knight, no joke, the victory conditions in a deck builder are great. Your starting trash cards are bad, but you can play one of them every turn to do a very, very good special power, and they are your victory conditions, so you need them in order to win the game. Very interesting. Does things that other games don't, and I am willing to forgive the terrible components. I will say this, though. Uh, the Heimwerker very generously 3D printed off some appropriately sized Viking miniatures so we can replace the awful meeples. I have nothing against meeples, but in, in this particular context, they're uh, <coughs> clearly borrowed from other designs. That figure that was clearly a, a robed individual that was a doge in other Italian yes. games, supposed to be a lady Viking, and uh, I'm not buying it. So... <laughs> Well, we can sub them into our our the only game that matters, Seal Team Flicks. There'll be nice little things that can get knocked over, I'm sure. <laughs> Absolutely. So that was Asgard's Chosen Design by Morgan Dauntonville by Mayfair Games back in 2013. So, on to the games we played last week. Walker, what did you play last week? Well, we got a bunch, or you got a bunch of Reiner Knizzi games in, and I got to play one of them called Sumatra. And I think it's sort of his take on Roll and Write. I think he's working on some other Roll and Writes, or I've put some out. I'm not sure. But this is very much a, a, a sort of roll and write system. You're moving along these to these different locations and you have a sort of, you know, bingo score sheet and you're checking things off. You know, I've seen this, I've seen that, I've witnessed this and you sort of accumulate scoring conditions much like you would in a roll and write game. I agree with you in that the scoring conditions feel vaguely reminiscent of a roll and write. But I think that you're doing somewhat of a disservice to Sumatra and somewhat of a disservice to Reiner Knizia's design aesthetic, and I think actually giving too much credit to Roland Wright's because I've I've said before, and I actually I'll, I'll be talking about this in a moment. Roland Wright games are typically a scoring system in search of an actual game, and Reiner Knizia's scoring systems tend to be very interesting elements of his games. But to say that all that's going on in Sumatra is what you would find in a Roland Wright, I think, is a little bit unfair. For one, there's more player interaction in Sumatra than there is in your it's average. True. I didn't say it's the only thing. I said it has a feeling. of... No, I have it right here. The only thing. Oh, gotcha. You. It's exactly like a okay. Roland Wright. Well, I'll have to go back and listen. It's it's right. I, I transcribed. I, the... I 100% agree. It has this very interesting thing where you have a bunch of tiles to choose from, and if you don't like them or it's whittled down, you can surge on ahead, and you'll get the first choice of all the other tiles that are are coming up. It also has this interesting, you can sort of look around the board and take tiles you know other people are looking for, all sorts of interesting stuff like that. It has these victory condition tiles that you can sort of race to get, which is interesting as well. All in all, it's a great little gateway game for sure. Yes, I think it is very firmly in the family arena. I don't think it's quite a kid's game. I think the scoring conditions will be a little bit too complicated for children. And I was honestly a little bit disappointed by Sumatra, not necessarily in comparison to anything else other than Raw. I, I actually feel like this is, a, this is a perennial problem with a lot of Knizia's games, actually, because he likes set collection, he likes drafting, he likes other things. Raw's auctions are so good, and it has a similar kind of scoring element. Whereas in Sumatra, you're just drafting things. And you're right, there's an interesting bit about when to pull the trigger and go to the next lot and, and, and leave the current tiles behind. But you get that same tension in when to pass on buying lots in Raw. And so I was actually legitimately halfway through the game thinking, this feels an awful lot like Raw and a million times worse, which is not a huge slot against Sumatra. Saying that a game is like Raw but not as good is not exactly unique in the Eurosphere. I would say that about, if not most auction games, certainly many auction games, and certainly most set collection games. 
So I enjoyed it. It was fine. It was okay. If you want a family-style Reiner Knizia set collection game, I think you could do worse. But I was hoping for one of those crossover hits that Knizia has indeed been publishing over the past few years, where it's like, this is vaguely similar to other stuff he's done, but novel enough that I want to keep in my collection. Something on the lines of I'm going to write the card game, or something along the lines of Lost City Rivals, or some of the other things that he's done recently. So I enjoyed it, but I don't know that I'll be going back to it. And that was Sumatra by Reiner Knizia. I'd also, I'd also like to I, I was a little ooped out by the theme. It was a little, it, it felt a little exploitive. Like, we, we're having a discussion now in board games about when is it okay to talk about colonialism, when is it okay to do this, that, and the other. Sumatra is not a colonialist theme, but it's literally white dudes and dudettes traveling around an island, gawking at the local scenery, and sometimes that local scenery is local indigenous people. And you're not doing anything bad to them necessarily, it just feels a little creepy. Where you're tra- filling out this logbook, it's like, oh, today I saw these indigenous people. Also, I saw a Sumatran tiger. It's like, eh. I was a little creeped out, honestly. Agreed. And that is Sumatra. What was the other Ryder Knizia game you got to play, Mark? The other Ryder Knizia, that now you see, that's a pro-level segue, Walker. Is I, it? Yeah, absolutely. The other Ryder Knizia game I got to try was Tejuto. And Tejuto, since we're on the topic of somewhat creepy themes, we actually flagged this when we first heard about this game. This is, this is the game that seeks to gamify spiritual enlightenment as represented in Buddhism's introduction into Japan. So you've got the whole Orientalist uh, trifecta here, where you're gamifying religious elements... And you're representing historical events from the mystical Far East. And so it's not terrible. I'm not saying you shouldn't play it because of the thematic elements. I'm just saying that contrary to Reiner Knizia's deep attachment to theme in his design process, he swears up and down that he starts with the theme and he designs from that. He's clearly not averse to reskinning it. And so, again, with something like Sumatra or Trujudo, I, I would have been more comfortable if it had been rethemed a little bit. It is minor misgiving. Maybe I should have more of a misgiving, but I don't. Anyway, Tejudo is a strange game. I very much enjoyed it. It's about building pavilions. And so in that sense, there is a very strong mechanical element of they, they, they do look like pavilions. And they do look like the standard Japanese architecture that we're, uh, of, of tiered building that we've seen for, for many, many centuries. And these, these beautiful plastic pieces that tier appropriately, and you have to pull them from a bag. And you're expected to, therefore, know what size of building you are pulling from the bag. You just don't know what color it is. So you can look at the board, and you can say, okay, well, three of the buildings need level two, one of the buildings needs a level one, and the other buildings need a level three. And so you can start playing with risk in a very Knizia kind of way. It's like, well, I'd really like to build the tier three brown. Eh, if I pull a tier three, I've got a 50-50 shot and things like that. That part I very much appreciated. I was a little concerned that it was going to be overly tricky to pull out the right size floor. But with three players, all of them new to the game, we never pulled a size floor that we didn't want to. We always got the exact size floor that we wanted to. And I have to attribute that to the, the quality of the manufacturer here. This was put up by Super Meeple, at least in the, the English version. And I was very pleased. It's very, very visually appealing. They've got these lovely plastic pieces. The currency of the game is uh, meditation points. Again, not a huge fan. And I was a little bit concerned because it's not like you get income. You only get meditation points when you do very specific things. But the tension of what to do with your meditation points was just about perfect, which is to be expected with a Reiner Knizia game. I shouldn't have doubted them. You get it organically just from building up uh, uh, levels. Sometimes you have to spend an action. You can throw meditation points to spend to do more than one action on your turn. You can buy tiles, which give you more actions on the turn for free. 
And some players did that, some didn't. Some invested in other infrastructure bonuses. It's not a serious, this is still a, a medium light Euro game, so it's not heavy. But you do have some trade-offs and you have to make some decisions about how you're going to approach these things. I really enjoyed Chijudo. I'm, I'm, I'm keen to try it again. The early turns were much less interesting than the later turns, but honestly, when you're going to have that kind of trade-off, I would much rather the boring turns be in the front end rather than the back end. I've complained about that. That was one of my complaints about Paris, actually. The uh, you know the later turns felt more scripted than the early turns did. And I'm interested to see whether there's the diversity of strategies that it looks like. And there's a sort of push-your-luck element, and there's a sort of investment element, and there's a fair degree of player interaction in terms of denying people building spaces. It's a little counterintuitive. As I say, it's, it feels a little strange. Despite how light it is, it feels like a, a weird game. One of the strangenesses is, just to give you an example, getting a floor to build is an action, but building is free. You can build for free at the end of your turn, and in fact, you can only hold one tile from turn to turn anyway. Everything else costs an action, but building is free. That was so counterintuitive that, again, three new players were like, wait a minute. And so now I spend an action to build. It's like, no, no, no. Building is free, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but it is what it is. So that was Tejudo. Much more satisfying to me than Sumatra. Wish it had a different theme, but I do confess that at least the theme comes through in the architecture, if nothing else. So you and I got to play a social deduction game, Mark, that goes from about a zero to a million in about 30 seconds, (laughs) and you're at full speed right off the beginning. It's called Scapegoat. You roll some dice, you check this little chart, and it'll tell you who's going to be the traitor and or the scapegoat. And they can instantly go to the police and turn themselves in and ride out everybody else, whereas everybody else sort of has to figure out if, you know... I guess, no, even the scapegoat doesn't know they're the scapegoat. They just sort of have to figure that out as well. They have to well. figure it out, yeah. Nobody knows who they are at the start of the game. It's an inversion of the classic social deduction paradigm. But you're looking around the table. Anything goes, winks and nods and, and nudges, and you, you're you never quite sure, and you quickly go to the police only to throw the game, and it's over in sometimes 10 to 5 minutes, and it's a perfect social deduction game for me. So this is a review copy we got from John Perry, the designer. John Perry is also the designer of the shockingly good Air, Land, and Sea, the two-player card game. John Perry, uh, when I heard that he was designing a social deduction game, I was immediately intrigued, independent of all the goat puns. The goat puns are definitely an added bonus for me. And I didn't really know how the game was going to feel based on reading the rules. But the moment the rules come out and people start taking actions, you're exactly right. Every single thing is heavily scrutinized and you start getting paranoid real quick because either you're part of the group that wants to gang up on the scapegoat or you're the scapegoat and you have to figure out that all your friends are are conspiring against you and you don't know which of those two is true. And so normally at the start of the game, you just get this mandate. It's like, all right, we're going to pin this on red. We're going to send, we're just going to feed red as a a patsy. And then people start doing things that make it look like, wait a minute, are they coming after me instead? What's going on here? And then as you're exactly right, the temptation to panic and throw the game by running to the cops is so prevalent. It's marvelous. Now, most, I, I love the longer social deduction games. The Resistance is one of my favorite games of all time. And it's very intense and it's very talky. And not a lot of people want to do that. Not a lot of people want to argue for 45 minutes on end. It's not a. It's not necessarily a universal personality trait. And that's one of the reasons why I was uh, hopeful that Scapegoat would be something slightly more up more your alley. Because you're one of those gamers who I, I, I think it's fair to say doesn't want to haggle, negotiate, or argue for 45 minutes. Much less for two hours. That's one of the reasons why you are amongst the Philistines who does not appreciate sidereal confluence. Agreed. 
So, <laughs> so I was very glad that Scapegoat got all that good paranoia and inference and clever, clever card play in such a tight package. We played four games back to back to back. Thoroughly enjoyed each one. Now, it's worth noting, and I think this is groupthink. I hope it's groupthink. The scapegoat won every game because people panicked and ran to the cops. And, and whenever somebody goes to the cops, the scapegoat wins whoever the scapegoat is, whether the scapegoat was the one who ran to the cops or not. And this is exactly because you're just scrutinizing everyone's actions to figure everyone's plotting against me. Why did he pick up yellow? Why does he need yellow? I'm not yellow. He's not yellow. Exactly. I'm going. <laughs> <laughs> that is exactly it. I can't wait to play again. It was it was it was marvelous, quick engaging paranoia. I think that it's another triumph from John Perry so far. I I was a huge fan of Scapegoat. All right. So we got to play an oldie but a goodie. Mark, I hadn't played this game in many, many years. Agricola by Uwe Rosenberg, published by Lookout Games. We put this up on YouTube, a live playthrough, and we played the revised edition and it was much better than my my first play had at feeding or first time I ever, you know, was feeding workers and or keeping the homes heated. It was uh, a nice change in my uh, more matured gaming outlook. I, I wasn't surprised, actually, all these years I've been hearing you slag Agricola. And I didn't realize that your only experience with it had been in Farmers of the Moor. I've got nothing against Farmers of the Moor as an expansion, but as a first play, it's not what I would lead with because it doubles down on the pressures of taking care of your family, both in terms of food and having to heat them. And we played without Farmers of the Moor in the revised edition, and it was also, as you say, a dry run of live streaming in person. And I have I have to say that both as a game and as a stream, I was very, very pleased with the outcome. Now, I've loved Agricola ever since it came out. It's probably my second or third favorite worker placement game. And as I commented in the context of our review of Hallertau last week, one of the vir- it has two salient virtues that I think really elevate it above lots of other worker placement games. One of them is the fact that it is so tight introduces more player interaction than you might otherwise get. And it introduces what I think is a very pleasing tension in terms of decision making. And you get to see the evolution of, of your actions from right at the beginning of the game, placing a worker just to get a read or two or just to get a grain. And by the end of the game, you've now got this engine, you've got four or five family members and you're going to an action space and you're doing three things and it's great. And you feel like you've, you've really elevated yourself from the start of the game. And related to that, the second benefit is at the end of the game, you have something to show for it. You have this lovely little farm and you get this little pen with pigs in it and, get to look at all your family members that you've trained to do various things. One of my family members was an illusionist. Ooh. Yeah. Yes, you get this huge extended family, and you can see where you have this engine slowly building up and creating this, you know, interesting little village that you've got going. And uh, I'm looking forward to playing it again. You know, focusing more on the cards, trying to get some combos going, and it's a great game. Every game is a new voyage of discovery with new cards. Sometimes you see a card you've played before, but usually it's a it, it, it's a favorable feeling of recognition rather than, oh, I've seen this before. And there's enough expansions in either version, either the base version or the revised version, so that you could easily never encounter the same card set twice. I really love Agricola. I still think that it is Uwe Rosenberg's best work overall. And certainly his best worker placement game. And so I'm very glad you appreciated it more on your second play. I definitely think we're, you know, ready for the tournament scene. (laughs) Uh, No. (laughs) I do not think that is correct. That is Agricola by Uwe Rosenberg. I played Super Skill Pinball 4K. This is Jeff Engelstein's roll and write game from last year. 
And I will say two things. Number one, it does do an impressive job of emulating and aping some of the conventions of pinball. I'm not exactly what you would call a deaf dumb blind kid. I'm not a wizard at pinball, if you will. It's a very cutting-edge cultural reference I got for the for the uh, there, Walker. But there is this idea of certain bumpers working the way that is vaguely reminiscent of the way they work in pinball. You can have multi-ball mode, and that's really where you're going to get a lot of your multi-ball. points. Multi-ball. Precisely. And that part was all cool. The components definitely helped sell it. The You have these very, very shiny hemispheres that are meant to be the pinballs that move around. So I played solo. There's no player interaction. So What's the difference? So what's the difference to a large extent? And as a result of playing solo, it just felt like paperwork. (laughs) That's what I honestly feel when it comes to roll and write games. When I play a roll and write game with multiple players, I don't feel like I'm getting anything from their participation other than the social benefit of being with other people, which let me tell you, I'm certainly in a position to appreciate more after recent experiences than before, but doesn't really relate to the game itself. So I'd, I'd rather do a shared activity that was more of a shared activity. And when I play solo, I feel like I'm doing paperwork. I was literally sitting there with the dice in, in my offhand and the dry erase marker in my right. And I was rolling and I was scribbling something down. And I roll and I scribble something down. And, and I just felt like I was filling out a spreadsheet. I, I really did. And so I, it, it's, it's well done. Uh, the graphic design is very nice. The There are these different evocative themes in terms of the pinball tables, but of course theme in pinball is already weird, but people who are very devoted to pinball take this seriously anyway. And it's getting lots of plaudits from everywhere, but honestly, it doesn't do anything to fundamentally change the essential virtues and problems of your roll and write genre. No player interaction, clever scoring mechanisms to the exclusion of anything else. And so we talked about before, like, Reiner Knizia has clever scoring mechanisms in his games that also have legitimate gameplay and player interaction. So I, I don't know why you wouldn't want to go for that. And at the end of the day, the only roll and write that I can really recommend is Sonora, which isn't even really a roll and write because you've got the player interaction and the shared experience from just the fact that you're knocking people's discs around and you're not just rolling a die, you're instead flicking a disc, which is obviously better, but you still, but you still get that clever little scoring puzzle bit. So yeah, roll and writes just aren't for me. I, I haven't found any that really seek to overcome this. It was pleasant enough. I mean, the little scoring puzzles are kind of cool the first couple times through. But roll and rights do not seem to me to leverage the benefits that either Euro games or board games in general seem to have. And so I was hopeful that based on, on the positive response that many people had to Super Skill Pinball, that it might be an elevation of the genre. But I didn't honestly see anything in my initial experience with it to set it apart from the hordes of also rands. Other than, you know, again, slight thematic elements and visual touchstones, which weren't really, I felt, the failings of the genre to start with. So those were my early experiences with Super Skill Pinball 4K'd. You and I got to play a game of Steven Universe Beachapalooza, the ambulance chasing, steel killing, card battling game. <laughs> this is designed by Erica Bioris and Andrew Wolf, put out by Cryptozoic. And it does, honestly, it does an interesting uh, take on the, the show. You know, it brings in all the, all the characters that you know and love, and you get to sort of build this little band in front of you and power them up and, and crush monsters and try to steal all the bonuses they have and to give you the best advantage. And it lasts about three times longer than it should. But overall, I think it was not a terrible game. Yeah, I'm with you. I think the salient virtue of the game was that the the degree to which it involves elements from the show is truly impressive. You know, this is one of those licensed properties where, yes, it could have been a number of other licenses, 
But they really did a good job of having elements that made sense, even from the basic premise about multiple timeline Stevens engaging in a battle of the bands. If you've seen season one of Steven Universe, this makes perfect sense. And the different characters and even some of the way some of the characters work were very evocative of how they are on the show. Uh, from, you know, the kleptomaniac onion to various interactions between various monsters and various characters. The way it deals with fusions is also very cool, although there is a mild spoiler. And I think the salient benefit of being able to play it was I was just able to talk to a whole bunch of people who'd never seen the show. And as cards come up, I was able to give them the brief bio. And at, at the end of it, of the three people at the table, two of them were like, I should really watch this show, which is not nothing. So that, that's definitely one benefit of it. But I agree with you. It's just too long. There's a drafting phase, which is fine, where you draft audience members and the band members and you have to manage your energy to make sure you can power your band members and set your band members up either for a potential fusion and or to leverage their special abilities. And that part's fine. And then you go to the execution phase where you're just launching attacks against the bosses. And this takes forever. Way way too long. We played with four again, but I wouldn't want to play with two, for example. No. I don't think there'd be much there. It's a whole lot of, well, I spend three energy to activate this attack. That's give me this amount of attack value looking over at the cards. Like, okay, well, I guess I'll do this one. Uh, so there's that bonus and this bonus over here and this bonus I have for this combo and this other bonus. I guess that gets me three of this and two of that. Okay. And repeat, 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 repeat every round. You do this nine times total. And every time it happens, it's a little bit of a drag. When it happened the first time through, I'm like, oh, well, this is kind of cool. There's, there's actually a lot of room for building combos. And then by rounds, you know, three, four, and five, I'm like, these combos take forever to just execute and resolve. Oh, goodness. So I agree with you. If this game were a third as long as it, as it is, I think there would be something serious to recommend it. As it is, it's, it's a lovely artifact for a Steven Universe fan. I've got to say that much. Yeah, it's got this interesting tiered system, which I love, but I don't think there's a big enough step up. In each tier, I think I think if it graduated a little bit higher every time, then it would be, it would take it that much, you know, make it that much better because the audience didn't seem to, you know, get any better. Just sort of gave you the same benefits. You could, you know, replace them and then get the same sort of deal, but they didn't get more powerful, which would have been very interesting, actually. And the enemies aren't staggered. Your cards are, but the enemy cards aren't, which leads to a strange imbalance. Furthermore, I, I have to call out the fact that the rulebook is not very good. There were a number of times where I just had to shrug and, and make a best guess uh, analysis, far more so than, than usual. And also some of the iconography only made sense to me because I have watched the show. For example, there's an icon for a for a character, Connie Maheshwarn, who exists in, in all three of the decks, Act 1, Act 2, Act 3, with different abilities. And the icon for her, as of Act 1, is her is her in her costume and pose from Act 3. And so we were actually passing the card around the table with some people like, that doesn't look like Connie. It's like, no, 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 trust me, that's Connie. She starts wearing that outfit later on. And so as, as a fan, again, as a fan of the show, it works fine, but <laughs> otherwise not so much. So I was very pleased with how it executed on the thematic promise of a Steven Universe card game. That part made me very, very happy. I just don't know if I ever want to play it again. I don't. That is unfortunate. <laughs> well, it is what it is. I mean, it is, yeah. the, the game took us, what, in excess of two hours? Exactly. With rules explanation, it took us in excess of two hours. And that is, as you say, roughly three times, 45 to forty-five to 60 minutes, I would gladly play this again, no problem whatsoever. You know, there was already talk of if only we could collapse it into maybe two acts of two rounds each or something to that effect. I'm not a game designer, though, so I'm not going to do that. It, just, it was just too much mechanical procedural tallying and counting. 
And l- n- so that, that quickly overwhelmed the joy of being able to spend time with all these characters in card form. Agreed. And that was Steven Universe, the Beachapalooza card battling game. Got to try a, ga- a game called Ausonia. Ausonia is the noise you make when someone selects a certain character when playing Mortal Kombat. Ah, Sonya. Asonia is a deck building game that is very reminiscent of the Realms games or of Shards of Infinity. And honestly, when I was playing the game, I wish I had been playing one of the Realms games or Shards of Infinity. It is a very straightforward deck builder. It has a couple of cool elements that are not seen in the other ones. One in particular was when you trash cards, they don't go out of the game. But roughly, I'm oversimplifying here, for every two cards you trash, you can generate a bit of currency that will generate currency every turn. And given that there are three different colors of currency, this can give you a tremendous degree of flexibility. And that contributes to a very organic feeling sense of ramp up. At the beginning of the game, you only power things with cards in your hand. By the end of the game, you've got this side tableau that's generating five energy of three different colors every turn. And so you can do marvelous amounts of things because every card has to be powered in Ausonia. Generally speaking, cards don't do anything by themselves unless they're energy cards and you use them to, to power other cards. It it didn't feel like it had any idea of how to handle multiplayer play, though, because in your more recent Realms games, as well as Shards of Infinity, they recognize that if you're going to be playing three-player or four-player, just the standard version of you generate some amount of attack power, pick a character, they lose that many points, does not fly. You have to do something, whether it's team play or in a three-player game where your combat affects everybody equally. But in our game, we were playing three players, and it was just, well, I'll just do damage to whoever's in the lead. And that's just not satisfying. Potential kingmaking abounds. It doesn't feel like it makes much sense. And I, I thought it was just mechanically a little bit lazy in that player count in then instantiation. Now, there are expansions. This was Kickstarter that had a whole bunch of optional modules, but we didn't play with any of those. I, I can't speak to whether that addresses any of it. I'll also say that the uh, cast of people representing the cards are... white and 99% men, unless, of course, you're talking about the card entitled Gossip, in which case ladies get to be on that card, which I was not a fan of. I thought that was not cool. So all told, Ausonia was fine. It was it was okay, but I thought that mechanically it was clumsy, especially when compared to the fact that they're already six to eight relatively solid alternatives that work more or less the same way in the realms game slash shards of infinity so pick your favorite and go with one of them Sonya didn't do anything to differentiate it enough i liked that element of the currency and of the the trashing that i talked about but i don't think it really paid off especially when compared to all the other shortcomings and that was Sonya. i got to go back to the taverns of tiefenhall just today this is put out by designer wolfgang warsh Put out by North Star Games. Anyway, this is a charming little game. It's a deck builder. You you uh, run this pub and you sort of uh, get to build your deck and you're and you're dealing up cards. And as soon as your tables are folding, you have to stop. So you're sort of trying to get more tables, trying to cut back on customers, trying to fill your deck with other cards so you get more of them out before your bar fills. And then you get to buy more patrons. You get to buy stuff. You get these cool puzzle pieces where your whole board sort of transforms and and upgrades. And it's just an all-around interesting game. It has all these different modules that you get to add to make it more complicated. There's an expansion coming out this year. I just really enjoy this game. It's just fun to play. And that is all I've got to say. I've talked about it before. It's got an interesting dice drafting thing on top of all this. So not only does it have deck building, but it has dice drafting. So you get to, you know, run run your little engine with dice, much like you do in Dice Hospital. But that quickly got old. Hmm. Taverns of Tiefenhall by North Star Games. 
we get to play a pair of dexterity games. Let us start with one that we've been anticipating for a very long time, and that is Yura Yura Penguin. I finally did my research, by the way. It took me far too long. Do you know what Yura Yura means in Japanese? What does it mean, Mark? It means Cold. to wobble. Wobble, wobble, penguin? No, just wobble. Just wobble. Yura Yura means to wobble. Gotcha. I thought I knew that Yura Yura Penguin would be cute. I thought I was prepared for the level of adorableness that was going to be in Yura Yura Penguin. I was completely unprepared. I knew nothing about how Yura Yura Penguin was. So, first of all, it has the best use of spot UV coding I've ever seen in game components. The tiles, which are actually just flimsy cards, more on the components later, that you use to build up this structure in your dexterity game, have spot UV coding to have a lovely little shiny effect to kind of imply ice, which was marvelous. And oh my goodness, the penguin meeples. Which are there are a plethora of. It's not there's just so one many, type. There's so many. There's about eight different kinds. And there, there's so, there, there are so many different kinds. And there's a massively fat penguin. There's the molting penguin. There's the baby penguin. There's the baby penguin with the parent penguin. There's the emperor penguin. There's the penguin cooling itself off. I left it. Oh, my goodness. Very cartoony. Very cute. Very amazing. Now, unfortunately, though, and this is where I have my standard bevy of complaints about dexterity games. And this is one of the reasons why I keep going back to things like junk art. Because junk art, to me, although it has some problems with the scoring, is perhaps outside of the only game that matters, Steel Team Flicks. Just in terms of pure dexterity games here. The closest you get to something being legitimately within striking distance of being a competitively reasonable experience. Not that everything has to be. I will gladly play all these games. I will play Rhino Hero Super Battle all day long, every day of the week. But just recognizing that at the end of the day, whether or not I win is entirely determined by the die that you roll at the end of your turn to see whether you can go up with your superhero. And that's okay. I'm not, I just want to make sure that people understand where I'm coming from. And Yuri or Penguin more or less fails as a competitive experience because it's, you flagged right at the beginning. It's Uno. Uno, Crazy Eights, take your pick. Yeah. And so the goal of the game is to get rid of all your cards. And you can play a card that lets you take another turn. You can play a card that forces your opponent to draw two cards. These are not balanced cards. <laughs> Standard fare. Yeah. And, and, like, so immediately once you get past that, you just get to play with these delightful pieces. You maintain this gigantic tower, classic dexterity, nice tippy towers. I love your, your penguin. I will say I was pleased with the variety of the dexterity challenges, though, because when I saw it, when, when you look at pictures of, of Yura Yura Penguin, and I recommend you do, because you'll get maybe one-fifth of its adorableness through the pictures, I was expecting very much like Rhino Hero or Rhino Hero Super Battle. It was always the same. You play, a, you, you play a card, you put an iceberg on top, you play a card, you put an iceberg on top, and then sometimes there would be some penguin placement or some ice placement. No, no, no. There is no default placement in Yura Yura Penguin. It is strictly what the card tells you to do. Sometimes the card tells you to put an iceberg. Sometimes the card tells you to put ice. Sometimes the card doesn't tell you to put anything. And you just end up with these further stacks of cards. Could say put it on a polar bear. Then you're in trouble. Yeah, I, I didn't have the guts. I had I pulled the polar bear in our game. I didn't have the guts to play it. I, I didn't. Do you know anything about polar, polar bears? They're yeah. the most vicious killers they, of the animal kingdom. They really are. I I was thoroughly charmed by Yuri or Penguin. I will happily play again. But unfortunately, it does not get to enter into the hallowed ranks of dexterity games that are also legitimately well-designed games on top of it. But as you say, as, you, as you've said before, this is clearly a labor of love. The badly translated rulebook and all. Uh, it uses iceberg in, I think, three different ways to refer to three different types of game components, which is not ideal. But I was so thoroughly charmed I would happily play again. It was a solid, solid, solid dexterity game. 
in the visual appeal and in the dexterity challenges. So absolutely something to bust out with children. I, I defy anyone to be unmoved by Yura Yura Penguin. I get to play Tangaru in in the flesh with the real components. Components made of flesh? Components made of flesh, That's gross. I know. So we played it online, but I got the Kickstarter weeks and weeks ago, but never actually got to play it. And so there's real boats, real dice, real cards, and unfortunately it did not improve the game very much. (laughs) It did – wait, it did not improve? It did not improve the game very much. It is too bad. It, it it didn't make it didn't worsen it, of course, but it's it still it is what it is, and it it really highlighted the fact that if you've played the game before against people that have never played the game before, mm. there's a huge advantage. But still, interesting game where you're you know building a little end game scoring engine. You're going around to the different islands and you're trying to maximize your score. And all in all, it's a pretty fun game. It does seem very lovely. The components look very nice. Were the components really nice? The components were very nice. They're all silk screened, even though oh, well. there's a little story there. We got finished playing. I was putting it away. I said, oh, my yellow pieces aren't silk screened. You know, I must have uh, got I must have got component batted again. So blah, blah, blah. I, you know, start filling out the little form to Alley Cat Games saying, you know, I, it's not a very big deal. If it's a hassle, don't bother. And then the little thing came up, you know, well, if you have any pictures of your damaged components, please take them. And I said, well, they're not really damaged, but, you know, that's the only sort of scroll down work. So I put the pieces in front of the camera and I was like, I look closely at the screen. And it's like, why are they silk screened on my screen, <laughs> but not silk screened when I look at them? And the camera could pick it up. But your naked eye could barely see the fact wow. that the yellow ones were silk screened. But anyway, that's my little uh, Tungaru story. <laughs> it's a great little move your canoe around, you know, recruit guys, do all sorts of fancy actions and combos to get resources. It's a, another a cute little game, Tungaru, by Alley Cat Games. The other dexterity game we got to try was Flick of Faith. You'd tried this before. Sure enough, if you're going to do mythology, this is very true of Asgard's Chosen as well, if there's a tier option, you take tier. I mean, obviously. And I, I was just so charmed by tier special ability. Tier special ability is if you flick with your offhand, you get to do something again, which is kind of making light of the fact that tier is one-handed. And I had to say that I, I I thought it was pretty solid. I mean, I didn't think that the game developed in, in quite a satisfying way. It felt a little bit repetitive by the end of the game. Every act, every age, as they call it, you get a new set of game-changing rules that you get to kind of sort of vote on. But they didn't mix things up quite as much as I would have liked. And so I felt like I was just, okay, here we go, do the same thing again. Especially since part of the challenge of the game is getting out your temples, which are these somewhat immobile pieces that you don't flick. that are just supposed to sit there and hope for the eventual area majority. During the part where we were trying to get out temples, that part I thought was great. And if the game could continue in that vein, where there's constantly this pressure of trying to build up your presence, that I thought was great. But by the last age, where both of us had all our uh, temples out, at that point we're just deciding which islands we want to contest for area majority. And when the dexterity challenge is... Flick your disc onto this massive island. It wasn't that difficult. It was just, you know, pick an island, go for it, you're done. And so I thought that it kind of petered out. And I, which is a shame because the, 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 the fundamentals of the scoring, unlike your, your penguin and a lot of other dexterity games, struck me as solid. And so I was a little bit disappointed by how it kind of, kind of ended the game. 
It might have might have been that bad because of its two players. I think if we had uh, full four players or three players, it'd be different because the way you can place your temples in a two-player game makes them almost impossible to knock off the island. Whereas if you're playing with more players and you got to sort of be a little more strategic where they go, and there's more chance of them being knocked off. The first game I played, even two-player, my opponent was very uh, aggressively bashing my temples off the islands. Okay. So... In all, I'm definitely wanting to play it more. I think it's for the time it takes. I think it's not too bad. I oh, know, absolutely. I know, like you said, it was. It is. It does get a little repetitive, but it does not overstay its welcome. It's only like four rounds, and you're done. So it's not too too bad. I don't want to sound too down in the game. I'd happily play again. And I agree with you. In in a situation where your temples can get knocked off, and you then have to rebuild your temples or decide not to rebuild them, I think that would be definitely preferable. Unfortunately, as you pointed out, we can't play four players. Because you don't have the components for all four players. They're, they're on their way. Good. That makes me happy. And that is Flick of Faith. So talking about games that do what they do, Strike by Dieter Nubel, published by Ravensburger Games. We sort of pulled this out very quickly because I did get it in just on a whim. And I knew that I knew when I read the rules what it did, but I think it does what it, what it claims to do quite nicely. You're throwing <laughs> dice into this coliseum or pit and you're, and you're just deciding how many times you want to roll in because you're matching dice and pulling out. It's very much a convention game or a party game or, or you know, you have the a hyperactive child. You know that they're not going to sit down and play any sort of real board game. This is the game for them. You just huck dice into a pit, match them up, try to be the last one with dice left. And if that is a game you think will be useful for you, it is called Strike. For a game that plays itself, and for a game that has only the barest veneer of decision-making, I agree with you that it leverages its gimmick rather well. Mostly you're just pitching dice at other dice, hoping to dislodge those dice, except in those times where it doesn't really make any difference, and you're just hoping to get lucky. Overwhelmingly, it's a function of luck. That's okay. It's all right. And I agree with you. Uh, this, this definitely seems like a good option for hyperactive children, especially in that if they get too hyperactive and too aggressive, they lose the dice anyway. So... Inoffensive, very quick, not much of a game. Strike. Exactly. <laughs> Put that on the side of the box. Exactly. Yeah, that's, the, <laughs> that's the catch line. Not much of a game. Strike. <laughs> <laughs> Got to play Aquatica. Aquatica I talked about a couple weeks ago. It is the incredibly quick deck management game a la Concordia or a la other games of its ilk where you only have your, your, your cards, you play the card, you do what it says it does, and you have a card that gets all your card back. So it's not really deck management, it's more like hand management. Cross with deck, with, uh, with deck management. So it is, we played the quickest way possible, namely with the default objectives. And sure enough, it was over and done with in a very, very, very short order. Do you, how many cards do you start with? So we didn't even get through two full rounds. Like, th this ended at the end of round two. Yes. We didn't even get two rounds of our cards out. Yes. I think it's too short. <laughs> Would you be interested in trying it with oh, the 100%. advanced? It seemed very interesting. I was actually into it. I was enjoying it. I said, okay, this is going to be, oh, we're putting it away now. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I really, you know, in hindsight, I shouldn't I shouldn't have introduced you to the basic version first. I'll take that on the chin. That was my fault. I should have introduced the advanced version with this because the advanced version has harder objectives to satisfy because the game ends when somebody's completed all, all four objectives and the base objectives are super easy. Uh, and so, well, not not super easy, but they're they don't take very long to do. 
I do still like the way you have to manage your locations and the way you slide up locations and you have to use use up various currencies in order to evolve them to the point where you can score them. And some of the components are aggressively charming, like the custom the custom plant plastic manta rays or something else. Yeah, I, you're sort of sh- short selling it by going over so quickly. You have this really cool player board. Well, I'm trying to discuss it in a length proportional to the length of a session of yeah, the game. Yeah, I, I think we've yeah. already if, talked if about the, it. If the review is longer than the actual game, <laughs> exactly. Like, but anyway, you have a player board. You actually get to slide in these locations, and depending on how how hard it was for you to get them, they're going to have more or less abilities and. And at any time while you're doing other things now, you can – if you're doing something that requires those bonuses, you get to use them and it slides up and they slowly use up those abilities. And when they've used them all up, that's when you're allowed to, you know, graduate them into scoring conditions. And I, th- I think that whole part is very interesting. Yeah, it's definitely the most novel part of the game. And again, as I commented before, it's interesting to have – have to manage bonuses rather than manage costs. In most other games, you have to pay a whole bunch of things before you can score them. Here, it's you have to juggle your actions so that you can benefit from the bonuses so as to make use of the scoring, which for some reason feels very different to me. It, it amounts to the same thing more or less, but the the sensation is cool. And uh, maybe we should try it with more players. Maybe that would get, get the length up a little bit. Because, again, this is one of those things where the shortness of the game is actually a little, little bit of a problem. You don't get to see your deck breathe at all. And so you end up buying a card and just using it once, if that. And then some smart guy who taught you the game is like, oh, I'm already done. Yeah, I, I know what I'm doing, so I'll finish the game early and win. Look at me, I won. Yeah, what a jerk. Who would do that? <laughs> Such a person should never be invited back into your home, Walker. And that is Aquatica. Now, on the theme of we've had like a million dexterity games because we finally get to play games with people, and usually dexterity games require more than one person, I got to subject Mark to Megacity Oceana. And this falls into the category of all of the problems that we've already talked about. One hundo P. Where they have this fantastic idea of a game, but cannot turn it into a game, and completely falls apart in end game scoring or 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 game completion. It's been a while since I've played a game that was so keen on keeping you from the good stuff. Because in Mega City Oceania, the good stuff is building up these buildings and then ever so delicately trying to slide them into the middle. And the game fights you. In Mega City Oceania, you're, 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 you're being fought. And on top of that, it has one of the cardinal sins, especially for a dexterity game. I've complained about this for years. I don't like it when the smart play is at odds with the cool play. I didn't seek out to sort of break this game and ruin the fun for everybody else. But in Mega City Oceania, you have to spend an action to get a card. You have to spend an action to get a tile. You have to spend an action to get components. But actually building the thing, you're supposed to be doing during other people's turns. And you'd comment on this. I didn't quite internalize how it worked. But if somebody else is just grabbing a couple things, their turn is going to take five seconds. And now suddenly you're sitting there. You just finished your turn. You have to start building things. And you have one of two choices. Either you pass your turn, which is what we did, because that's the only civilized thing for human beings to do. Or you say, all right, everybody gets to wait and watch while I laboriously build my building. And just let the game grind to a halt. On top of that, and this is the part where I kind of ruined the game for most people. I would look at a card that says, okay, this 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 building of yours has to consist of seven, seven components. It needs to be at least 35 millimeters tall. And I'd be like, well, if I just pile them, that's going to get me to 75 millimeters, won't it? Measure. Yeah, it does. Okay, here's my pile of trash. This is my building. And to your credit, I wasn't happy about it. 
to your credit, you and Huey looked at me like I was some sort of subhuman monster, which I was. But the game turned me into that walker. Like I, I wasn't trying to be a performative jerk about it. It's just when the smart play is at odds with the clever play, I feel like I'm either going to be a sucker or a joyless idiot. I don't like it when games put me in that position, Walker. We were making marvelous art. We were making you were, actually. architectural masterpieces. This is true. And you brought filth to our city. I did. I did. The first building I built, I tried to make look like something interesting. And sure enough, it, I, I would defend that first building that I built. And then when I started looking around and saying, like, wait a minute, the way to make sure that the game keeps moving so that people don't have to wait for me, and the way to score the most points is to not play it like a dexterity game and just play it like an incredibly dull building management game. And so that's the game I played. And it was bad. <laughs> it was bad. <laughs> and I, I think it's worth noting, I won handily by playing a bad game. By So this, this is a game that doesn't play to its strengths. It puts the smart play at odds with with the cool play and doesn't know what to do with its very pretty components. And interesting concept of using these pretty components to try to build buildings to spec and then gently slide them over into the middle. It, I, it was it was crushingly disappointing to me, honestly. Yeah, like how many games have we played like that where the concept is fantastic, the thing that they want you to do is is super fun and interesting, but then the, the way they implement that into a game just ruins the entire process. I agree. It's sort of like Dexterity Game 101 lately. I agree. Mega City Oceana, designed by Jordan Draper and Michael Fox, put out by Hub Games. You also showed me Micro Macro Crime City. I did. And I was not expecting to enjoy Micro Macro Crime City in execution. I was expecting to enjoy it in concept, not execution, because it's basically where's Waldo meets puzzle solving. Neither of these I like. We only played one scenario, and this is one of those things where the review is going to be longer than the game, because it took us, what, 45 seconds to three minutes or so? <laughs> Tough to tell. But it was this lovely narrative. It was this lovely story where the game just says, find this thing, and it gives you enough guidance so that you don't, you're not, like, puzzling over this massive map like a Where's Waldo thing. It gives you enough guidance to be like, oh, well, that's an interesting landmark, but not the one I'm looking for. Oh, wait, 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 here it is. And you get to feel clever, even though you did something that a simpering child could do. Not that I have anything against sim simpering children. Children's, children got a simper. It's what they do. And then it tells this lovely story about something terrible happening to somebody. Now, granted, the one we had was not particularly malevolent or harmful. Or, or gruesome. Or gruesome. Uh, some of them might be, which is a shame because otherwise I think this would be a great children's game. Seriously, it, 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 it was just the right level of puzzle solving for me because I, I normally don't like puzzles. It was just the right level of, of spatial recognition for me because normally that's not my bag either. Because it was just infused with so much narrative and character that you just got to construct. It was almost a storytelling game because you got to, to find out what happened. And we, I was so invested. I was hurling obscenities at the perpetrators and they hadn't even done anything all that terrible. I, I thoroughly enjoyed Micro Macro Crime City. I, will, I think it is a perfect way to start or end a game day. Just set up the map and someone starts saying, find this thing. And it just evolves and gets fleshed out. It was, it was glorious. It was very, very good. That is Micro Macro Crime City. Love it. And those are the games we played this week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. All right, let's start with the big thing. This week in board gaming news, uh, Board Game Arena has been bought by Asmodee, and some of you might think, well, I never use Board Game Arena, or that seems fine to me, it doesn't really matter. The only thing I have to say to that is that Board Game Geek is also privately owned by one person, Scott Alden, and this is the same thing that could happen to Board Game Geek. It could just be simply bought by a company or sold to a company, and then that is now run by a, a corporate entity. 
which would be devastating to the hobby, I believe. So this is something that is concerning to me and other people that use Board Game Arena. There's a whole other sub-story about all the people that have made games for there or have games up there. And now why would other companies submit their games to be lorded over by Asmodee when, you know, they can almost do anything with it depending on how their new contract's going to be worded. Anyway, for those people who use Board Game Arena, I feel as though it is terrible news. This is part and parcel of a hobby experiencing growing pains, I think, to some extent. I agree with you that I don't think it's a good development. We're talking about a series of handshake deals and free labor in most instances. Like, the, the, the people who developed the, game for board, the games for Board Game Arena, I think, almost universally are uncompensated. And a lot of the rights holders for the games and a lot of the publishers who allowed games to be hosted at Board Game Arena did, did so on the digital equivalent of handshake deals. And now that there's serious corporate interests involved, this is putting the entire arrangement into question. And now granted, to, to be clear, people can back out of these arrangements. I have not yet heard of anyone asserting, well, now I'm captive to this arrangement. I would not have signed this deal with Asmodee, but now I can't get out. Mostly it's, well, we can we can pull out and have the games not be hosted by Board Game Arena anymore now that it's owned by, by Asmodee. But it's an awkward situation, and I, 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 my heart genuinely goes out for all the people who put in volunteer labor to make this thing a success, and now to see it monetized in this way. I'm not accusing anyone of corruption, and I'm not accusing anyone of being mercenary, but it's an unfortunate situation, and I, I honestly can't think that it will redound to the benefit of Board Game Arena's users. I, I have difficulty imagining that to be the case. Yeah, I have nothing against against the sale as a whole, right? Maybe the, I'm not sure what the, the reason they started this was. Maybe it was to make money and this is exactly what they wanted and, and all the power to them. That's the whole reason people get into endeavors is to make a profit into. Well, some and, endeavors. Some endeavors. That's what I'm saying. Like, I'm not sure why they started this. Maybe. Sure. They, so maybe that's why they did. So all the power to them, but it is to our detriment, I feel. I agree. Brief good news. On a company that used to belong to Asmodee, but then emerged, Plathead Games, Summoner Wars 2nd Edition, pre-orders are going to be open on the 1st of March. Summoner Wars is cool, I like it, and I will say that in their promotional material, the uh, the pictures that I've seen have mostly been uh, women of color who look badass and are fully, fully clothed and fully armed and armored, so uh, more power to that as well. So look forward to the pre-order window for Summoner Wars 2nd Edition. Mark, when I was looking through some new stuff, I'm wondering if we should step back into Underworlds. You know, lately I've had some free time, and the stuff they do with Underworlds is fantastic. They keep bringing out more stuff. It looks more and more fantastic. I'm just wondering if if we should step back into the world that is under. I'll take a look at what warbands they've released and see how aggressively GW they seem. They've got some Savage Orcs that came out. They've got uh, the Lizard Men that just came out. Another whole box set that that is released. I'm I will, I'm interested to see. And there's been a bunch of this news. I sent you the link. That is this cursed, cursed city that's going to be coming out. It's another whole three hundred dollar box set. And we'll see what that what that has. I'll see if we can get the 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 bo- the, the game without the minis for twenty five bucks on eBay. In the past, I've been able to do that. We'll see how that goes. Just want to give a brief heads up to all of our listeners. Uh, we very much like getting feedback. And uh, one of the questions we often get is, have you ever talked about this or that game? And I just want to once again flag that the greatest website of the internet for now, until we launch our own website, which will have the full information on the entire Swag Extended Universe and all the cast of characters therein, 
There is a website being maintained by a very talented and uh, very appreciated listener that basically compiles all the RSS descriptions of all our episodes, so you can go do a quick Control-F and see whether we've talked about any game that you want over the course of the years of swag. There will be a the URL of the website in the episode notes, so by all means, go and find it. It's also on the Board Game Guild, Guild number 3236. Just look on the, you know, the the main form there will be under there under under episodes or list or something like that. <laughs> it's, 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 it's pinned to the top. How's that? And lastly, from me, Mark, I have one question. How much zombicide is too much zombicide? Like how long, how many times are they going to hit that? Well, like, yeah. like now it's zombies in the wild west. Oh, they hadn't already done that. I'm actually kind of surprised they hadn't already done that. I am surprised. When I saw it, I sort of had to think back and say, was that not sort of some of the theme? But I guess not. Now so I guess have... I guess next is underwater zombies? Yeah. And then zombies. And then I, I've been promised zombies. That is not I, true. I have an in... Okay, I don't have an inside line. But, <laughs> but, but they should. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you. Finally, for me, I released an editorial this week that is uh, profoundly laden and full of uh, anger about a lot of the fallout and continuing developments in the Daniela Tushini, Phil Eklund, you name it, fun again, developments in the hobby about racial justice and inclusion. And a number of people have called to make that editorial public just because they, f- they wanted more people to listen to it. I'm not going to do that for two reasons. Number one. We take our Patreon-exclusive content very seriously, and a number of patrons have indicated they don't want it made public. And number two, it's profanity-laden. And I did that precisely because I knew it was going to be directed towards a certain audience and that they would understand it. But there's there's one bit in the overall discussion about Rado and Daniela Tushini and everything else that I want to make absolutely clear, both to, both to set the record straight and because I think it might be helpful for future discourse. And a number of people have commented to us, like, you know, we, when you branded Tushini a racist or when you called Eklund a racist— we have never, ever called anyone a racist on the show. Nor nor have we passed judgment on anybody, nor have we heavy-handed on anybody. All I want to say is that the fact that I have said things only to show people that this is a continually thing that happens over and over again. And if we don't call it out every time, it becomes normal. Exactly. So we, call, we, we focus on acts and their consequences. We have not judged the characters of anyone involved because – it leads to a toxic discourse, and it's precisely this the discourse we saw. People, well-meaning people, report, I am reporting that you have harmed individuals through your racist discourse. To which the response is, well, I can't have done a racist thing. I'm a good guy. Therefore, I'm not a racist. Therefore, I could not have done this thing. No. That is a category mistake. Decent people say and do racist things. That's the upshot. And so when we try to call out discourse, and when people call us out for having said or done racist things... The natural impulse is to take it personally and get on the defensive. It's completely understandable. And again, we don't judge people for doing that. We don't judge people. We judge acts. We're reporting harms on the part of our listeners. And so this on, these ongoing developments, like, well, you know, this apology shows he's a good guy. I don't care if he's a good guy. I'm willing to take it on faith that everyone on earth is a good guy. That's fine. The point is, we are here to try to protect vulnerable people and to make our hobby inclusive. And that's the only, that's our only agenda. And that's what we've been trying to do. And that's the lens under which we observe these continuing developments, which we absolutely are monitoring, but it is not for us just as a final capper to determine whether or not this apology is acceptable or another apology is acceptable. It is the stakeholders and the vulnerable people who've been harmed to report to us and to others, whether or not they think that this is, this is acceptable amends. And that's one of the reasons why we haven't yet 
you know, there, there's no final word on any of this. This is a continuing struggle to make the hobby a more welcome and inclusive place. And so that's the sort of footnote that I want to add to this continuing development. And that is one of the things that I talked about. Although, again, in the editorial version, I, I, I swore a bit more. So <laughs> that's what I've got to say for now. More to follow, of course. But remember, we're not in the business of calling people good, bad, racist or not. That's not the point. We're here to talk about specific acts and their consequences and try to protect people from harm. So that is the news and why some of it doesn't matter. On to our topic, which is dead collectible games. Walker, what do you have to say about dead collectible games? Uh, they're quite dead. <laughs> so, uh, first although, of all, although we've been seeing some Kickstarters coming out that have bring bringing back some pre-painted stuff, so there's like a little light at the end of the tunnel, so it looks like maybe a little bit of pre-painted stuff is slowly creeping back in. Well, so. well, one, well one dead collectible game got resurrected recently, and that was Dragon Dice. Or rather, it wasn't. It never really, even really died. It's one of those things that that's kind of been resurrected several times over the course of things. Yes, Shadow Fist got resurrected under uh, similar circumstances. As one thing I'll note before we get deeper into these dead collectible games, I'm always amused. You and and I don't want to tar everybody with too broad a brush. Usually, in the context of fantasy flight games, I'm always amazed when people talk about non-collectible games as though they're dead. It's like just because no more expansions are being released for a game doesn't mean it's dead. That's not how things work. <laughs> well, there are some points, like, because people sort of need that. It, well, what, it depends how you define dead, right? Sure. Are, are you, is it bringing in new people? Is it, is it, is it let, is it getting less and less plays or is it getting more plays, right? So if it's slowly shrinking, then you could say that it's dead and slowly dying, right? Because people aren't getting that, that, that influx of new stuff. They're not, they don't get to open that booster pack. They're not being able to, uh, rework their decks over and over again and, and sort of work in that. Oh, I finally got that one card and now I got to sort of, you know, figure out how to, you know, work that into my deck somehow. So if you don't get that feeling of having to rebuild things over and over again, then you're, I think that, that genre slowly dies. And I think that's why sometimes these games fall apart. That's one of the reasons actually why I love dead collectible games. Because I don't want to feel like I'm part of some sort of movement or group that has to keep going on or worry about how many people are playing a game. That's one of the pressures of tabletop miniatures games, actually, that I don't really enjoy. It's similar to the pressures of playing a CCG or a CMG or whatever, whatever have you. I like being able to come back, come to a game a year or two years at, or however long after it's ceased being supported by the publisher that has, you know, however many runs of expansions and being like, oh, I don't have to worry about dealing with an evolving meta, evolving anything, or worry about the community at all. There's just this thing waiting for me, like that show that ended 10 years ago on Netflix. It's marvelously liberating, I think. I know. I, I agree with you, but that's what makes this hobby so great. There's so many people that love so many sure. different things. I forgot to hit some of the other points I have on the same thing. It's sort of like a mission of completion sometimes. Like people want to have a complete set, so they'll keep buying this stuff. So that's what keeps the game going. And I also have written here that the the company needs to keep the proper balance. Like it dies sometimes because they don't keep a proper balance. Or Absolutely. the next set comes out is too powerful or not powerful enough. Depending right. on how, how the game – because some, some games are different. Some games, they – you know, get stronger and stronger and some, and, and, and work that way. And then some, some games where you, you bring out stronger cards and then it just makes the other ones useless and, and it doesn't work with that system. Oh, I have endless respect for, I, I'm talking particularly about Magic the Gathering here because the way they've managed a meta 
over the course of decades is mind-bogglingly difficult. And I think, regardless of whatever problems the game has, the fact that they've been able to, ma- to, to maintain it this long is truly impressive. Like, they're not the market leader for nothing. Like, part of it was the first mover advantage, and I do agree with Richard Garfield, the designer of Magic, that Magic has some serious fundamental mechanical problems. But the the, the way they've managed things... Uh, now, uh, notwithstanding recent controversies, there's that whole Walking Dead business with the characters that, that <laughs> there were these exclusive cards that are arguably too good or what have you or, or, oh. or exclusive in the wrong way. I mean, but there's a, there's a million different little mis- decisions you have to make and, and a single misstep sometimes can undo it all. But again, I just like being able to come to these things when they're dead. And you mentioned something, the joy of being able to open a booster and, and or rip open a booster box or whatever. That's that's sort of the great things about dead collectible games. It's Especially true. if you hit it at the right time. If you, if you hit it at the wrong time, it might cost you more than retail cost. But if you hit it at the right time, you can get it on pennies on the dollar and rip open tons of stuff. I think 90% of the ones I'm going to talk about are exactly that. Yeah. But the other thing is, the one last point I have here is where to go. Uh, oh, yeah, unique. See, Keyforge hit on that exact thing. And Richard Greenfield mm. knew that this is this is one of the key things why Magic uh, does so well that it does, that sometimes you'll have a deck, or a lot of times your deck is like nobody else's deck. And I'm not talking about Keyforge. I'm talking about Magic. Right. Right? And then Keyforge just took that to the next level. Every single deck you buy is different than everybody else's. You don't mm-hmm. need to collect it. You don't need to do anything. You just buy it, and yours is completely different. And so that's the other thing that, you know, makes these things so good. And like you said, there was in, and it, it worked out in our particular area as well. Our, our biggest local gaming store, unfortunately, had, has a bad reputation of, of, of renting out locations that flood. He does, he, they haven't had flood <laughs> sales, uh, lately, but back in the day, they would have flood sales where you could pick up uh, you know, thousands of dollars of these collectible card games for, for mere, you know, 10 to $15. Well, for me, my fix was a website called Hills Wholesale Gaming, which, uh, was really hit its heyday it, right around the same period that collectible miniatures games were all the rage. But you don't really have collectible miniatures games anymore. Eh, there's World of Tanks. You might argue that some of the other games are effectively collectible. One might want to make the argue that uh, argument that Warhammer Underworlds is. But I'm talking about you know the blind booster box randomized thing. And I they're all pretty much all of these dead collectible games that I've either gotten into in a minor or major way. I got through Hills Wholesale Gaming. This is not an endorsement. We don't endorse websites here. Does, isn't HeroClick still by Oh, HeroClick is still around. Yeah, okay. So that is a buy booster. I, ne- I, I never played HeroClick. Neither. Oh, I, I played it once and then I, it, it does not do it. It's one of these things where you get uh, three activations. Right. Right. So you have a, a myriad of, of heroes, but you only get to activate three of them. And, right. And the, the one and only time I played it just, it didn't make any sense. Okay. These three heroes move and Spider-Man sits in the corner and does nothing. <laughs> and then once again... <laughs> Since I move these other three heroes up, I'm all, those guys are in position. I'm going to move them, and Spider-Man's yeah. still sitting. You know, and it's like, okay, that throws me out of the game. That makes no sense, and I haven't played it since. I'm not by any means saying it's a bad game, but that particular mechanic at that time made it uh, not a fun game. For me. Yeah, there there were some clumsy elements of of Hero Quest. However, since we're talking about clicks, though, uh, one dead collectible game that I came to shortly after it died was Mage Knight Dungeons, and for a long time. Mage Knight Dungeons was my favorite dungeon crawl because for a long time there weren't really any good dungeon crawls. I'm talking about pre, I'm talking about right around the time of, of Descent First Edition where it was pretty much the only game in town and it was a game that took you five hours and 
I think Mage Knight Dungeons was still better than Descent First Edition. I think we're going to get back to this with to our listeners because I know we've talked about this before, but my one and only storage place that I have left has like giant bins full of this Mage Knight Dungeon. I've only played it once. This was yet another thing that was left on my doorstep. So I need to get that to Mark. And, <laughs> and we'll, we'll, we'll get this played again and see how it lives up to time. Cause you know, sometimes the, the memory of a game does not live up to what you think it is. Well, it's very clumsy now. It's very, it's very stilted, very clumsy. You can do some interesting things with character generation. There is an interesting catch up element in that when you start losing heroes, you spend those extra activations on monsters to harass your opponents. It's very static. It doesn't encourage a lot of movement, and so that's a little bit unfortunate. But in some ways, it was way ahead of its time. For a long time also, it was the best game in town with respect to dungeon terrain, because it had these this dungeon tile system that D&D players would go after like crazy, or other people that needed a dungeon environment. And it was an interesting case of one of those dead collectible games where one of the sets, uh, namely Pyramid, was available everywhere, and you could get for, for, for literally pennies. And then there was the default core set, which was available for, you know, less than retail because it was dead. And then there was the last set, which was much harder to come by. And for that, you actually had to pay money. And so for someone like me, who wasn't a collector, who just wanted stuff, I'd be like, okay, well, give me a couple boxes of the cheap one and give me one box of the, uh, the other stuff. And you get to spend a couple days ripping open boxes and getting all the stuff and sorting everything. Yeah, for a long time, Mage Knight Dungeons was totally my jam. It now, uh, I, I think it's been obsoleted for gameplay terms, by virtue of the, the marvelous profusion of mostly co-op, but sometimes competitive dungeon crawls that are out there. So the market's really moved on. But the fact that for a long time, I think it was a really competitive quality dungeon crawler, despite the fact that it was kind of sort of an afterthought to a collectible miniatures game, is is, is very impressive. For me, it was the Lord of the Rings combat hex tradable miniature game. And this was yet, <laughs> I think it needs more words. I know. This was another uh, pre-painted, you know, but it was it came out almost at the same time the movies did. And instead of clicking, you had these little levers that you'd slid up and down the base. And it had it, – uh, like it's one of those things where I said you see it through jaded glasses. I'm sure if I, <laughs> I went back and, re- and and learned the rules again and played it again, I still have it. So we should try it one day. But you get to build your army, which is – which is very interesting and it had the combos where you know this these figures help you know these other figures and had rules of engagement and train and had all these different maps that you picked from and had a great little sort of uh tournament style play right you just had your little skirmish unit and the battles didn't take that long and uh, i'm interested to see if if we ever do go back to it if it lives up to my memories. Well, that's one of the great things about collectible miniatures games as opposed to collectible card games. Collectible card games, you can't really set a new player in front of your collection of cards. And it doesn't matter whether you've got 100 cards or 10,000 cards. You can't really set them in front of cards and say, I build a deck, I guess. So you pretty much have to do it for them, which takes a lot of fun of that. But when it comes to collectible miniatures games, you can set them in front of your collection and say, any of these look cool to you? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I was looking up the the card. You know, there's over 500 different collectible card games. Really? Yeah. There's wow. like you, you know, name an IP, and there's a collectible card game. That's true. Connected to it. One of my favorite collectible miniatures games wasn't even really a miniatures game, and it was so bizarre. It was called Navia Drop, spelt D R A T P. It was a shogi variant. And the miniatures were shogi pieces, basically. And on the on the miniature, it showed its movement patterns. Unfortunately, while it had a, a number of very, very interesting elements, multiple ways to win, 
uh, an interesting currency uh, element, uh, an unrestricted army building. Just take whichever pieces you want. They, they, they balance each other out because the more powerful pieces are more difficult to upgrade. That's dropping. Uh-huh. D-R-A-T-P-I-N-G. They cost more to, to drop, and they also give the opponent more when they are captured. So there was this interesting balance. Like, yeah, you could field an army with, you know, something that moves like a queen and something else that moves uh, like a rook and something like that. But you better protect them because otherwise the opponent's going to get a windfall when they capture it. Unfortunately, the different victory conditions weren't really balanced. The economic game was definitely the way to go. But uh, I, I had a ton of fun with Navia Drop. And one of the other virtues of Navia Drop, which is very unusual in a lot of collectible miniatures games, if you bought a box of boosters, you were guaranteed a full set. And so I, that is definitely how I was able to do it. And so I, my completionist urges were very, very easy to, to take care of. You know, I think it was only like 50 bucks to get a couple of booster boxes. And that was it. I had everything I wanted. Now, that there were some chase ones. The chase ones were pre-painted versions of the original. They had a sort of proto-shading thing, kind of like Sundrop, back, but way back in the day. And then they also had the painted ones, which were much more rare, but I didn't care about them because I thought they looked garish anyway. You know, these bright yellows and pinks on this weird creature. So I was very, very happy with the more stolid-looking gray things. Oh, I loved Navia Drop. Big fan. What I loved was Arcane Legion. This was a very like, sort of like weird fantasy-like Roman Legion type game, but it was like they had the Roman Legions. They had the Egyptians. Egyptians, and then they had – The a, Chinese, a, I believe. A, yeah, like an Asian type faction. And it was collectible and it was alive back when Warhammer Fantasy was actually Warhammer Fantasy <laughs> where you had like these blocks of troops and they had to wheel and charge. And that's how this worked. You had these – they all came with these pegboards and all the miniatures fit into the pegboards. But not only that, there was a template that you'd put over the board first. <laughs> And you'd sort of I'd say, you know, put four figures here. And while you played the game, you could do like what they call a reform and you would move the figures within the peg thing and it would, it would change their abilities much like it would in, in, in reality, right? It's like, okay, this is better for attacking. This is better for defense. And sometimes, you know, you wouldn't have enough figures to do it or, you know, you wouldn't figure, you wouldn't be able to fill certain holes. And just that part of the game was very interesting. And the fact that it had tons of cards you could choose from to, you know, slot into these pegboards and all the units were interesting. You had Roman bearer cavalry and, and all sorts of interesting stuff. Uh, I still have it, and I'm and I'm dying to try it again. Bear cavalry, I assume, is bears riding horses. Yes. Yes. Okay. Good. I would assume so. Yeah, I never really played any of the mass battle games a whole lot. Most most of the mass battle miniatures gaming I did was Napoleonics, which sadly has never had a collectible version. That would be interesting. You know, in this box you have a Cossack next to the old guard next to a Polish lancer, and <laughs> that would be strange. But then again, there was the collectible Axis and Allies game, so I guess Stranger th- not. Eh, Axis and Allies is much more mainstream than... <laughs> I never got to try it. I have a shoebox full of it, but I've never yet to try it. The one I probably played the most of, but this is back in the day, and exclusively because my local community was into it hardcore, was the Dungeons & Dragons miniatures game. But then it wasn't dead when I was playing it. It was it was still active. And again, that was just sort of pressures of the local community. Not a game I'd recommend. You would have hated it. It just uses D20 combat resolution anyway. It was not what you would call sophisticated or particularly interesting at the time. A card game that I got into for five hot seconds just by buying a whole lot of dead stuff was Hecatome. Did you ever play that? I, that's on my list. I have a ton of Hecatome. It was it was cool, but it was one of those things where like the cleverness kind of got in the way of the ease of use. You had these pentagonal cards that were semi-transparent, and you would stack them on top of each other so you'd see various elements of the other creatures. Uh, keeping them in your hand, shuffling them, keeping them tracked, tapping pentagons, not super easy. 
No, but I, I meant to look it up if this came out before or after Gloom. I think it's like this is definitely one of the very first translucent card games, and I thought I thought they did a great job. It was nice and dark. It had all these like crazy demons and stuff. And like you said, I, I'm surprised it didn't take off more than it did. Eh, I'm not surprised. I mean, for the time, like I'm, of course, when looking back now, it was not that great. But I think at the time, it was not terrible. Well, no, I'm not even talking about its design chops. I'm just mean like thematically and operationally. Like if you if you've got you've only got a couple chances to grab uh, a, a a gamer, and when the cards are really dark, both literally and figuratively, and a little bit hard to use, that's going to be a, a bit of a tough climb. That's all I'm saying. And then, like I said, when when Magic first came out, a whole bunch of people uh, tried to jump on the bag. Again, at that time, there was like a, a plethora of collectible card games, like uh, SimCity. I have decks of a card game called SimCity. Star Wars, the first Star Wars collectible card game. Star Trek, the collectible card game came out. Pokemon came out. <coughs> Excuse me. Pokemon came out around that time. So there was... Tons to choose from. Doom Trooper, that was a big one in our community. Everyone played Doom Trooper. That's oh. a that's a Siege of the Citadel type card game. You can actually that's a it's on Steam right now. They someone's brought it back. You can play a digital imp- implementation of Doom Trooper. Huh? It lives up apparently. It, it, it it's always had a following, like a cult following. Yes, Mutant Chronicles has Mutant been very Chronicles popular because it's years, uh, yeah. apparently it's a fairly solid game. I should go back and and take a look at it again. What was an interesting game, although not necessarily solid, was another dead collectible card game was the Babylon 5 collectible card game. I played that for a little bit. And what was interesting about it was that it, it was radically different from all these other games. Like whether it's Hecatome or whether it's uh, Magic or any one of the Magic uh, Magic clones, it was even more different from them than Netrunner. It was really just a sort of uh, political influence board game with CCG trappings. And unfortunately, as a consequence, it was very hard to build a deck with random stuff. So the the CCG model was not ideal for it at all. But if somebody revamped those mechanisms and streamlined it a little bit, it, it could be a little bit too long. And still had that simultaneously, that sense of, of, of scope. Because you could have, like, I play this character, and later on I play this fighter jet. And, well, this character can get inside the fighter and then go attack your flagship. Oh, you don't have any flagships? Well, then I, b- I guess I better use this character who also can manipulate things politically behind the scene to advance this other agenda I have about political manipulation. And, oh, guess what? That means that your character's now been persuaded to join my side. And, like, all this weird stuff that was hard to deal with in terms of rules-wise, but the, the overall scope and sweep was very impressive. And, you know, I, I like the show, so... I built a, a very uh, a somewhat successful deck uh, revolving around the Pac Mara, which is a little bit of a deep cut, so <laughs> I was very proud of it. There's another whole genre that we haven't talked about yet. It had all these, uh, uh, I guess they were like plastic cards, and you'd punch out these little things, oh, yeah. and they, it would, they would make all sorts of things. So, uh, Pirates of the Spanish Main was yep. one that I had tons of. Uh, it made all these pirate ships and Spanish ships and English ships and... Uh, even had uh, chips from Japan, like the giant hulks. Oh, and you could you do these fun uh, sea battles, and it had a card system that went along with it. I know Star Wars for a while had uh, spaceships that five you five hot do. seconds. Yeah, uh, there was a, a car a car game that you oh would, yeah you build little cars like Car Wars, you'd guns and stuff on them. Hmm. Uh, Transformers had a set. There's all sorts of. So my favorite of the dead collectible games that I've gotten into after they've died is probably the World of Warcraft miniatures game. I've talked about this before. I have no enthusiasm for the World of Warcraft universe. I have negative enthusiasm for it. 
but I got into it a little bit while it was active, while it was a viable game, and then I got back into it not too long ago, actually, well after it was dead. And one of the great virtues of it was that the scale was nice. So it, it felt a little bit like the claustrophobia scale, where mostly you're moving one or two hexes at a time. And the emphasis on scoring rather than just killing things, although killing things is nice. The time system is really cool. And while it was a collectible system, one of its virtues was every booster box was a usable army. I just loved that conceit. I thought it was really, really awesome. It made tournaments super easy. Not that I ever played in any because I was never fortunate enough to live in that situation. But it definitely meant that unlike a lot of other collectible games, even some of these other collectible games I've talked about, like Mage Knight Dungeons, if, if I couldn't imagine playing Mage Knight Dungeons when it was actually an active going concern because buying enough stuff to get a viable group together just boggles the mind. But, but. World of Warcraft, every box, that was an army. It was a usable army. There you go. You're off. Because it was only a couple miniatures. And the quality of the prepaints was pretty good, too. The other one we haven't talked about yet is Monster Apocalypse. Exactly. It had a great system, too. It had the, uh, uh, all these buildings that you'd get that you'd populate the board with. It was even more like a little bit of a board game as well because you'd put it this big paper map and you'd move your – you could – you'd make little cool little skirmish groups with usually like one big monster and a bunch of little troops and tanks and you'd fight against your opponent. Great two-player game? Yes. Great two-player game. Yeah, I'm a little bit disappointed that nobody – Real, that, that the reboot of Monster Apocalypse in the non-collectible version didn't take off. But then again, they dropped the, the pre-paint element, and so now we're talking about a full tabletop miniatures game, and at that point it's a little bit of a harder sell. Yeah, I really liked Monster Apocalypse. It was never accessible enough for me to get really good play into it, because it's, it's the standard situation, kind of like Malifaux, where you're just drowning in special abilities, and at the end of the game you mostly feel like the big victory is if you remembered to use your abilities regularly. <laughs> That's right. If you got through the game and didn't forget something, then you won. Yep. Moral victory. Absolutely. Most recently, the dead collectible game that I've gotten into, although only kind of, is the Mech Warrior collectible game. Now, the game itself is dodgy as all get out, and it has the same activation, pro some of the same activation problems that you alluded to with Hero Clicks. And the army building is super bizarre in that by the end of its life cycle, the Mech Warrior game had. Well, you've got a mech, and then you've got a pilot card, and the pilot card might correspond to the mech or not, and then you have upgrades that apply to this, that, and the other thing. It's just this universe of weirdness, and all these houses that I've never heard of, and <laughs> because it wasn't quite the same as the Battletech universe, but kind of similar. Anyway, I bought the miniatures exclusively to use for other miniatures games. So <laughs> in that sense, I was very pleased. I realized this is this is somewhat scandalous because, yes, the miniatures were not of very good quality. No, they didn't look very cool. And no, they weren't very well painted. Yeah, it was such a weird sell that because it yes. they didn't get the, the main mechs when they started that game. It was yep. all like sort of like farming and yep. utility vehicles. And they sort of – they. They paid for the license, but the only part they got was the name itself. They didn't yeah. get any of the actual mechs. Super bizarre. Super and this weird. isn't even the mechs that they had lost the rights to through Macross, right? So, yeah, you can't have a Marauder. You can't have an Archer. You can't have a Warhammer. Fine, fine, fine. But there are lots of other mechs that Battletech players will recognize. You know, give us an Atlas. Give us an Awesome. Give us give like anything. Uh, but no, no, no. Instead, you're quite right. You had these agrarian things and this weird nonsense and 27 different varieties of local conscripted militia. And things. like, come on. But if all you want to do is get fodder for a tabletop miniatures combined arms war game, like, for example, Horizon Wars, which is an excellent game and has a very excellent notion of, of combined arms. You need mechs, you need vehicles, you need flying things. Well, you don't need flying things. And you need an infantry. Well, 
couple boxes of the Mech Warrior minis, especially if you don't care that they look kind of ugly and that the scale is it's supposed to be six mil. And Mech uh, Warrior is fifteen mil, so of uh, course people would, would like any purist who plays Horizon Wars would, would <laughs> eject me from whatever non-existent club. But for my purposes, it worked just fine. And I plan on using the mechs to play Gamma Wolves, which was a recent release by Osprey Games, which looks kind of interesting, about giant stompy mechs. And guess what? I have a ton of giant stompy mechs that they come pre-painted. Thank you, Dead Collectible Games. I, there's a couple I want to look into. Like when I was doing some research on this, there's one called Wing Commander, the card game. There was a Wing Commander card game? There is game? a Wing Commander card game. Apparently it was not too bad, and there's a Judge Dread collectible card game. Okay, and that the the comments say, say that it's not terrible either. Same question for both games: Are they based on uh, the movie or something else? Uh, great question. Okay, glad you asked. <laughs> I, I'm actually looking forward to uh, pressing the Hanverker into printing up some sort of 3D printing some Wing Commander fighter minis to play. Uh, Horizon Wars Infinite Dark, which is the space combat version of Horizon Wars. Because I was thinking, despite my love of sci-fi, there aren't really a whole lot of, you know, deep space fighters. I mean, there are a million and one Macross fighters that I like, but they more or less look like fighter jets. Uh, until you put fastbacks on them. Anyway, I need to stop talking about this, because otherwise I'll never shut up. But I then remembered, wait a minute, there's Wing Commander. And I started looking at all the, the things on, on Thingiverse for Wing Commander. And sure enough, there are great models for all the, for the Drolfi and the Raptor and all those beautiful looking ships. So, cool. That's our deep dive into <laughs> dead collectible games. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.